Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us right now, Michael LeBlanc, Senior Retail Advisor at the Retail Council of Canada. Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. I played a bit of the food professor from Dalhousie, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, from the, our morning show this morning, The Start. Played a couple of minutes uh, earlier in the show, and he was talking about online shopping. Uh, obviously, a lot of people started shopping online when the pandemic hit. Do you think this is something that's going to continue? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, why don't I take a quick step back? I mean, online shopping, of course, is not a new trend. It's been no, around for 20 not. years, and and it's been increasing at double digits over you know pre-COVID. It was already increasing double digits. Uh, you know, we would estimate a retail council of Canada that it was about 8 to 10% of, of what we'd call core retail, so not including like automotive and, and, and gasoline. So 8 to 10% of core retail. Then the COVID era started, and, and you know, retailers were hit either with a sledgehammer or a shockwave, and, and grocery was the poster child for just unbelievable growth in terms of online. So, you know, again, pre-COVID, we would think that uh, online grocery would account for very small, like one and a half, one to one and a half percent, maybe two. Now, it's a huge industry, so that's that's not insignificant amounts of money. But, you know, inversing the math, 99% of groceries are bought in physical stores. Now, with this, you know, with the COVID crisis and what we're calling the COVID era, you know, we saw that shot up. We don't know the exact numbers, but we can see in some many of the retailers' results, you know, double, triple-digit growth. I mean, it could be as high as 15% today. It could settle out at about 5%. 5% doesn't sound like a whole lot, but 5% of a huge industry, it's a fundamental change. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just in our news meeting this morning, we have a news, a virtual news meeting every morning at 8.15, and some of the older participants were talking about being anxious to get back in the store and shop, whereas some of the younger uh, participants in our news meeting we're talking about enjoying online shopping. They didn't do it before, enjoying it, and how it will continue for them. Is it kind of a generational thing, too, to some extent? To some extent, but really, you know, anything this big is really pan-generational, so to speak, from younger to, to what we'd call the, the, silver, the silver surfers, and all for a variety of reasons. I mean, in fact, you know, the industry was a little concerned when we were talking and thinking about Gen Z, those digital natives, those younger consumers, that they'd never go shop in stores. Well, it turns out the opposite is true, because they see stores, you know, stores are just more about, you know, more about culture and, and, and being together. It's not just about transactions, right? Shopping isn't just about transactions. However, in the COVID era, there's been some changes, right? We feel safer getting groceries at home. Some, though, would just rather go get their groceries because they enjoy the experience. And there's pros and cons to each, and, and some people are doing a blend of both. Um, but I wouldn't say it's as much generational as it is setting into, you know, what you can access, what your lifestyle is, can you get deliveries at home when you want them, and uh, and the discovery and fun of, of shopping. Because, you know, it's less fun now than it used to be in the past 12 weeks. Uh, we're all getting used to what this means, and, and I think the grocers have done such a great job in, in making us feel safe with, you know, significant investments in, in um, safety measures and PPE and all those things. So I, th- I think the, the industry has reacted quite, quite well, and consumers are, it's a funny thing to say, but we're all getting a little bit used to this COVID environment um, where we know the precautions to take, and, and sometimes that means I'm going to just start shopping online for groceries, and guess what? I never tried it before. I tried it because of COVID. I love it. Others are saying, eh, you know what, I'd, I'd rather go back and, and shop in store. And, and still others are saying I'd like a hybrid of the both. 
I was sharing a story that I was reading out of, I think it was Arkansas. Um, they've got these big Walmart superstores down in the States, and they're testing this at one of the stores in Arkansas where it's a, a cashier-free store. And yeah. it makes sense uh, during COVID-19, during this pandemic, right? Less human-to-human contact or chance of the transmission of the virus. But is that something that we could see more of going forward, Michael? Well, automation in, in grocery and retail is no question, like e-commerce, is a growing trend. Now, it, it all depends, right? So, um, you know, a, gro- a cashierless store means uh, you've got to come up with a very efficient way for people to check out. I mean, if you've got 10 items or less, a self-checkout is a convenient way to go about things. But if you have 10 items or more, it's not so convenient, right? I mean, a self-checkout is fast. You can get in and out. But, you know, you need space to bag your own groceries and, and do all those things. This is where... Not only this idea of fully uh, or uh, you know fully automated checkout, this click and collect. We haven't talked about that yet. You know where you order online and, and pick up. Very popular with consumers in all formats. You know curbside delivery, where you order online, you get the best of both worlds. It's ready for you. You swing by, uh, and the associates put the um, put the order right in your car. Very popular. More popular now during COVID. I mean, for some retailers, it was their lifeline. It was the only way they could go to market. Um, so as I said, retailers were either hit by the shockwave of unusual demand as demand shifted from restaurants to grocers or the sledgehammer of the quarantine and the shutdown. And in those cases, all these different things around, uh, around shopping and online and digital were, were either a lifeline or, or just suddenly new customers who, you know, it was a jump ball moment. Suddenly customers were doing things they'd never done before and shopping in places they never, th- never thought of before. Mm-hmm. Our premier here in Manitoba, Brian Pallister, today announced the Manitoba Job Restart Program. Basically, it's a six-week program, up to $2,000, $500 a week, to get some people off the CERB, right? The $2,000 a month uh, from uh, from the feds, because some uh, areas... Some industries are having a hard time getting people to go back to work as they accept this federal money. Uh, I would imagine uh, retail is is probably an area that's hoping to get people back at it because uh, we're seeing stores opening up again. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and and you know the the it's easier to shut stores down than it is to open them up for a variety of reasons, not including you know the the government programs that came in to help citizens uh, across the country uh, to to get through this crisis. So it's easier to to say, uh, you know, shut the store than it is to open and getting the, your, your employees back and all kinds of new roles, right? Because there's new roles both in the stores and with this growth of e-commerce. I mean, we think of e-commerce as digital, but it's very physical too, right? You need people who work in warehouses or pick from aisles or pick from stores. You need people to deliver. There's a whole new need for a whole new sector of people to work in retail and distribution and the supply chain and in the value chain that either didn't exist before or that existed at a smaller level. And so, yeah, there's, there's a desperate need in some instances to get people uh, back to work to, uh, to help citizens and, and consumers get the foods and, and goods that they're looking for. Mike, one, one final question before I let you go here. Um, what other things that we are seeing now during the pandemic may we see going forward? What other good ideas in retail have popped out out of necessity that now may continue because, hey, that works pretty well? Well, I think I think the poster child for all of that is, is e-commerce and digital. No other trend was accelerated, I think, more than that. I also think, um, you know, this this idea of curbside pickup is one thing we're seeing across the country that is loved by consumers. It's 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 enjoyed by 
retailers who have a whole new way to deliver. It's not new, right? This buy online, pick up in store has been around for a while, but you know the demand, the changes in demand. We're also seeing, and we don't know how long some of these things are going to last, right? We don't know exactly where the waterline is going to settle. For example, e-commerce grew massively, but you know, as stores open up, people will go back to to shopping in stores as they feel comfortable to do so, and, and as the as the COVID era kind of ebbs and flows in terms of breakouts and non-breakouts. Um, so these things are, are new. We're not sure how long they're going to stick around. We're seeing massive basket sizes today. People are making less trips to retail because they, they want to go less often, so there's less impulse shopping. But what we don't know is how that's going to evolve over the next, you know, pick a time. Is that 12, 18, 24 months? So it, it, it's something we're certainly keeping a close eye on, and, and we're all experiencing together. So uh, you know, with your listeners and, and how they feel and, and how retailers and how they operate. Michael, thanks for helping us out today. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. So Manitoba is extending protections for tenants that were put in place because of COVID-19. The province's residential tenancies branch says non-urgent eviction hearings will continue to be postponed until after September 30th, and residential landlords may only evict tenants for urgent health and safety reasons. Also, landlords can continue to give notice of their intention to increase rent, but the higher rate cannot be charged until after the end of September. Tenants are expected to continue paying rent in full and on time, but if it's not possible, the province says tenants and landlords should work together to develop a payment schedule. Avram Chirac is with the Professional Property Managers Association. Avram, good afternoon. Hi, Hal. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate that. So uh, <laughs> I'm a landlord, and as I read that last sentence, I had a smile on my face. Tenants expected to continue paying rent in full and on time, but it's not, if not possible, the province says tenants and landlords should work together to develop a payment schedule. Now, I'm lucky. I've got some great tenants right now, but I've had less than great tenants in the past, and I know how difficult it can be um, to work with a, a, a tenant, some tenants, even with the help of the residential tenancies branch in the provinces suggesting that tenants and landlords just kind of work it out. How do you feel about that? You know, on balance, it's not a bad thing. Um, I've spoken to a number of different larger property managers, as we are, and most of us, that is working. There are still those few people, though, who like to play the game, and those are the ones I'm worried about. Yeah, and and as I read that, I, you're right. Some people will just always play the game, right? But I, I worry that if they're told you don't have to pay your rent, that some people that don't normally play the game might start playing it. So my personal experience and that of a couple of the other landlords I've spoken to is that's not happening, thank God. I think our province Good. got fairly lucky in, in our, in our uh, numbers of COVID and how we're reopening a little quicker. But certainly I've heard in other provinces where that's exactly what's happening. Hmm, interesting. Why is Manitoba uh, faring better on that front, do you think? Uh, part of it, I believe, also is our rents are a little lower than places like BC and Ontario where this tends to be a bigger problem. But, but I also think the, the, the lower numbers, more people have been working, uh, things reopened a little faster. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, landlords, and, and I know you're not speaking, um, well, maybe you do speak on behalf of uh, uh, commercial landlords to some degree too, but uh, do you think that landlords have been forgotten a little bit in all this? I understand that people have to pay rent and, you know, some tenants are are uh, maybe uh, have been furloughed or, or can't, uh, not working. I understand the challenges. I'm not trying to minimize those at all. But do you think maybe landlords in this discussion have been lost a bit because landlords have bills to pay too? Uh, I think to a great degree the commercial landlords, and we have a very small portfolio ourselves, but I was speaking to some of the larger ones, they feel forgotten, the commercial landlords, because the whereas the residential tenants are getting their CERB payments or whatever, the whole program that got rolled out um, for, for commercial tenants rolled out very late, and there's been a lot of problems for tenants. And the way the program is designed, uh, it doesn't fit the mold very nicely for a lot of tenants in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. What have we learned from this as, you know, representing landlords, your organization rep- representing landlords, what have we learned through COVID-19? What's working well? What's not working? Have we, have, have we learned any lessons through this as we have in many other areas as we deal with the pandemic? So, this, this is a silly thing to say, but we've learned that the less amenities you give tenants, the easier you have it during COVID-19. The, the largest problems we're, we're experiencing as landlords is not general cleanliness of buildings or dealing with tenants. Um, elevators have become an issue, which, of course, not just an amenity, it's a requirement. And any kind of common area amenity that a landlord offers have become very troublesome. So as an example, if you have a gym facility or a swimming pool or anything of that nature, and adapting is very expensive for this situation and, and troublesome. Right. I didn't even think about that. So, yeah, if you've got a gym or a, or a or pool or, you know, depending on, as you said, these these uh, special amenities that are available through this. So, so what does a landlord do in that case? You can't shut an elevator down, but I guess you could shut a gym down. Is that what they're doing or are they spending the extra money to have it cleaned all the time or, or how are most of them handling that? Well, they did shut down to start with. But um, the pressure is on to reopen because they're reopening gyms and other things elsewhere. So a lot of landlords are hiring extra people and cleaning much more regularly inside these facilities. Not that they were ever dirty, but sanitizing. And it's just creating more issues because um, you used to have, as an example, a small gym, let's say, with three pieces of equipment that ran 24 hours a day. But to have someone to sanitize it 24 hours a day is, is quite a chore. So they're trying to open up on shorter schedules, perhaps 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then does liability become an issue, right? What if somebody gets sick using a gym and the argument is made that it wasn't cleaned properly? Now there's a liability issue, right? There could be. It's it's a slippery slope. I mean, it's difficult to prove that it was the gym specifically, although I guess with contact tracing, if someone else in the building becomes ill and they use the gym shortly before, that would be how you would be able to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are communal spaces, and we've spent, all us landlords have spent a lot of time, energy, and money trying to make sure that we keep things clean for our tenants, which we don't mind at all. <laughs> but i got to tell you, at the beginning of this, it was really hard to find stuff if you didn't have a stockpile. Yeah, right. And then there's clean, and then there's pandemic clean, right? There's COVID-19 sanitized, and that's two completely different things. So it, it definitely would uh, would present some new challenges. Hey, Avram, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll take care.
Joining us now, Dr. John Murray, former education consultant and assistant prof at the University of Manitoba. Uh, John, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you there, Hal. Yeah, thank you for doing this. It's uh, Yes, and we appreciate you doing this. We've had you on a few times through COVID-19, and when we got word yesterday that uh, kids will return to classrooms September 8th, teachers a bit before that, we wanted to get you on today. Your initial reaction to that announcement from uh, Minister Gertzen on Twitter yesterday, not at a news conference, but on Twitter. Well, first of all, not necessarily reacting to the platform by which the minister made the announcement. Uh, yeah, I certainly am of the opinion fundamentally that we absolutely have to begin the transition to a return to school. And perhaps a little bit later on, I'll indicate why that's exceptionally important for our youngest learners. Uh, COVID-19 may be rather indiscriminate in how it, it infects people across the population. And it certainly, of course, does not affect children from that standpoint of the disease state. Uh, But we're now in a situation where the formal education system has been essentially shut down for a lengthy period of time. And there's a a lot of discussion and a lot of natural concern about things such as learning loss. Uh, Will we be able to bring uh, our kids back up to where we would want them to be in in the wake of that tremendous loss of in-classroom time? But there are actually held some parameters here that are, I think are even more important and focusing on things like learning loss. And, and that's the social and the emotional implications of particularly our youngest learners being out of that very stable environment that we typically call school for such a lengthy period of time. So that would probably be an area today, Hal, where I might like to focus a number of my remarks. Yeah, and by all means, go there. Um, let me just ask you a quick question, and this may lead you into that discussion. Um, no doubt, we're into summer break now, officially. No doubt uh, our kids have made it to the end of the school year, but they are not as well off from an education standpoint as they would have been in a classroom. Is that safe to say? Now, it, it may be safe to say from, from the standpoint of perceptions, Hal, uh, but because the, the learning process uh, and the learning outcomes are so very, very difficult to pin down in terms of measuring it, I think what we really want to be looking at from the standpoint uh, of our school leadership and our policymakers is the recognition that the, the inequities that typically occur across Manitoba society are likely going to be magnified uh, by the differences in access to education during these last approximately 100 days. And this is why I'm of the opinion that certainly at the pre-K and K-4 to level, uh, returning those kids to a full-time environment uh, in September is going to be extraordinarily uh, necessary, uh, particularly from the standpoint of their social and emotional well-being and actually having access to to the kind of learning environment that they have been taken out of by something that, of course, is, is very much uh, beyond their control. And, and so that aspect of, of things, uh, I think, for me, is, is terribly, terribly important. And so I might want to indicate that, that we have about 180,000 students here that are going to be ultimately affected in some manner. And we may flatten the curve from an epidemiological point of view in terms of the disease state, health. 
But what about flattening that curve of what could be a lingering mental health crisis amongst our very youngest and most vulnerable individuals? And as we've already seen surfacing in many parts of the country, if not elsewhere in the world, is that the most vulnerable populations to COVID are the very same populations that typically are the most vulnerable socially. And that's certainly going to be uh, including our children. And especially the young kids, eh? Uh, especially the the young kids. And and here's where we need to be sensitive, I think, uh, to a couple of things. Uh, there's probably a great deal of stress being felt out there with respect to the fact that we don't yet have a published public plan from the Department of Education as to how the return to school is actually going to roll out. But the flip side of that is that we need to be sensitive to the fact that the provincial government is dealing with an extraordinarily so-called wicked problem. And, and a wicked problem in terms of social policy is one where there is an almost impossibility to even understand the parameters that are feeding into the problem. So I think we need to be sensitive to the fact that uh, both policymakers in government as well as those who are on the ground in classrooms are faced with an absolutely unprecedented situation right now. And so uh, I would probably be of the opinion that in terms of learning loss or being worried about kids being left behind, we may need to focus for about one or two years, Hal, on a very, very different approach to schooling. And, and that emphasis is going to be less on trying to find out where we are with the strict academics and more of a favorable view towards the, the social and emotional well-being of our kids and having that built into some of those, those early days. So that's going to place a premium on being able to have our kids have access to very expert early child education specialists within their schools, to pediatric psychologists, to uh, newly trained teaching assistants who are actually going to be working with what we could describe as flattening out that curve of a kind of lingering crisis that we still don't really fully appreciate. You know, there, there's going to be kids and teens who might be reflecting upon loss of an elderly loved one or concerned about whether their education is going to lead to uh, worrisome employment prospects down the road. And so we may actually see this filtering down through the years how so getting it right amongst the earliest learners will be, a, uh, I think, a very, very crucial task. And, and the jurisdictions who are getting their youngest kids back into a normal school setting seem to be uh, on a very, very good tack. I think what you're saying is pretty significant. You're saying that what we've been through in the last few months may take a year or two of working with kids, parents and moms and dads working with kids, to get them to a solid emotional and um, social state. Am I reading you right? You're reading me right, and, and that's not really so much a suggestion. Uh, there's uh, there's a, a great deal of emphasis now uh, recognizing that for those who could be described as privileged families who over the last 100 days have had a stable home environment, they've been able to navigate things such as school closure and look for alternate learning resources for their kids. Uh, there are a host of uh, other young people out there, Hal, who don't have that kind of privileged environment at home. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't have the kind of ableism uh, that will allow for this sort of interruption to create a situation where they're avoiding even something up to including trauma. 
And, and so these are the these are the hidden perhaps elements in all of this how that we may not fully understand yet, and it's going to take a long time. It, it's probably going to take at least one to two years within the school system to fully appreciate what the impact has been on our young people, on the youngest learners, all the way on up to those who are in post-secondary education. So uh, again, we we tend to repeat this, uh, but patience is is going to be extremely important. Uh, so that we don't end up with what I might describe as a kind of COVID stepchildren phenomenon where there are individuals who have long and lingering issues uh, that have come out of this period in history. Well, so and talk a little, and John, talk a little bit about the teachers here because that's going to be difficult for the kids, for students, for moms and dads. But talk about the teachers because, I mean, you know, we're into a deeper conversation here, but you know, they're losing a few PD days. The teachers are going to have to sort of shift gears and change the way they do things as well if what you're saying turns out to be the case. Uh, I, I think most certainly, Helen. And, and, and uh, two days or four days or ten days of dedicated professional learning among teachers is not going to be sufficient here. Uh, that's really just going to be the starting point. We're probably going to need a, a systemic effort over a lengthy period of time uh, for teachers to be able to feel more comfortable uh, about their teaching and learning environment in the current or the post-COVID era. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, there are going to be a tremendous number of unknowns. Uh, and we, we should be cognizant of the fact that it's not about getting it right. It's just about recognizing that subject area specialties are probably going to take a bit of a back seat for a period of time, certainly for our younger learners, uh, because uh, the age group that we're dealing with here, let's say up to about age 12, uh, any kind of interruption of those crucial developmental gains are sometimes things that will actually have longer-term impact on the society, whether it be Manitoba society or, or Canada at large. So if we see this as a disruption that was beyond our control, we can't leave that disruption unaddressed. It's the children's developmental trajectories that are probably more important, far more important in my estimation, than the loss of potential learning uh, that could be measurable or, or unmeasurable. That's probably how I would describe it. John, thanks a lot for this. And obviously, as we get more details about the return to school, we'll have you back and we'll talk more. Dr. John Murray, former education consultant and now assistant prof at the University of Manitoba. John, thank you. Now, thank you so much, Hal. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.